first of three podcasts, NAC dance producer Kathy Levy speaks to Le Ballet C'est de la Baie's trailblazing founder and choreographer Alain Platel. Alain sat down with Kathy in October while here in Ottawa for his company's performance of Out of Context for Pina, which opened our 10-11 season. Happy listening. I'm just, I cannot tell you enough times how happy I am to bring... Oh, I'm glad. Really, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I hope that it's not another 14 years or 20 years before we do this yeah, again. It'll yeah. have to make sure to uh, keep bringing projects that uh, we can continue to show more of your work to our audience because obviously they responded extremely well. They did. They did. Yeah, 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 yeah. But before we talk about 2010, I, I would love it if you would take me back and... Uh, just tell me a little bit about um, where you grew up and how you found your way into a dance studio. So back to the catacomb. <laughs> <laughs> um, You're not that old. <laughs> no, no, I start to feel it. Um, yeah, I, I come from a, from a, a very, very, very warm family. Uh, my father is an architect, my mother... He used to be a teacher, but then having five children, she couldn't combine this job with um, us any longer. So we had her for us for a long time. That's great. And um, that I think that probably made it also this, this, this warm nest. Um, and I um, must say that in school, I wasn't that much of a, <laughs> a good pupil. And uh, when I finished high school, I didn't know what to do, but there was this, uh, this possibility to, to join an exchange program um, as a student and to go to the United States for a year. So I did, which I'm still surprised of that I did, you know, for a year, to leave the family for a year. And How old were you time, then? I was 17. Okay. And where did you go in the States? Well, I went to Bristol, Oklahoma, which oh, is a wow. very, very tiny little, you could say a village, because I remember they told me there were about 3,000 people living there. My gosh. And uh, I also remember there were 32 churches. Wow. <laughs> and you were coming from Ghent? Did you grow up in Ghent? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So that was a long, the first long trip, but uh, also a very important one, because they're um, coming from this warm uh, protected nests, I uh, all of a sudden came into a very strange environment. The family I lived in was was really great. It was similar to the family I lived in in Belgium. Um, but um, I had to take care of myself a little bit more. And for example, to support a family financially, I had to accept um, a few jobs, you know, to live by. And one of them was to work with them a remedial teacher in high school and she worked with children in difficulty okay and uh, that was my first confrontation with children in need and the world in need i would say and um it triggered something with me uh, in me um at least when i came back i knew what i wanted to study so i started to study psychology and pedagogics um and uh, specialized in what they call in flemish orthopedagogique which um could be translated as a psychopedagogue mm -hmm. working with children in, in difficulty 
And this was emotional difficulty. It could be physical, okay. uh, psychological, social. Um, I worked in a in a children's psychiatric hospital for a while, and then for five years in a cerebral palsy center as a psychopedagogue. And um, at the same time, was doing theater, but just for fun with friends of uh, of mine, and also my sister was involved in a company. And um, but this was. Um, was was meant to be like uh, for fun and and more like a joke, but then it, it uh, got out of hands because in that period um, in Belgium there was a strong interest for alternative work into theater and dance. Um, the first influence of the dance theater from Germany was already felt, and um, there was also a good a good. Um, environment for that because um, we didn't have any history so everything was possible you didn't have any money but that was a minor problem you know you just if you wanted to make a performance you did and there was always a space to show it and in my case I was living in a in a loft um, big enough to in, to to invite people to come and see it the, the first performances so um, and I remember in one of these performances we showed there was a young director of um, a new festival, a movement festival in Antwerp, who wanted to invite us to this festival of new dance. To our surprise, I must wow. say. <laughs> and then it's, it started. But I, I read, be just to backtrack a little bit, I read that you went to see a performance of Maurice Béjart. Is yeah, this true? That you went true. to see a performance and I think a teacher, I read, uh, invited you to go and you hated it. And yeah. there was some kind of well, if you don't like that, then you do something better. Kind of a, almost like a dare. Is that is that how the story That's really goes? Absolutely true. Isn't that uh, wild? And and just recently, um, in a few weeks, there will be a program on television called Goldfish, and it's a program where they follow uh, Belgian artists. Oh. And uh, they followed me for a year, and um, they tr they 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 trace people that are connected with you, and they they went to see this teacher. He's now <laughs> 84. Wow. A beautiful man, really. If you see him, he's, you know, he's, he's not that age. But anyway, it's, it's uh, indeed a guy who, during my high school, had a, a great influence of, uh, on me <clears throat> in terms of um, looking at art. And um, I met him. That was the period that we uh, started to think about making our own performances. And... We met uh, at a performance of uh, Maurice Béjart, and indeed after the performance he was very lyric about it, and I call it very old-fashioned, you know, a bit, a bit provocative. I would never do that again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's true, because, because I, I remember I, I was quite um, uh, provocative in, in describing the dance uh, Maurice Béjart was making, but um, now after all these years I recognize how important he has been for the evolution of the contemporary dance in Europe. He but himself was a bit of a revolution. Absolutely. Away yeah. from what the standard was at the yeah. time. Yeah. Absolutely. But this guy, uh, Hido de Moon, my teacher, he, he was very shocked by what I said. And indeed, he said, if you can do better, uh, do so, and I come to watch. And since then, he indeed comes to see That's every amazing. performance I make. Oh, I love that. And um, he always writes me That's huge, great. long letters where he describes what he has seen, the questions he has, 
the critics, but in general, he's very positive. And what was that first piece like? Do you, do you remember that first piece when you, when you took him up on his dare and did this first experiment? That was, um, the, um, the piece we made was in, in, in the loft I lived mm -hmm. and was inspired on this space. And it was about two men fighting about one woman. And um, the woman had to choose between the two of us and a big cake that she was carrying <laughs> with her. And at the end, she chose the cake. <laughs> And you were in it? You were the, a performer? In I was a performer, okay. at that, a performer at that time. I, I, I was involved in two of the performances we made. Okay. And then uh, after that, uh, I became um, the, the look from outside. Okay. Uh, because I, I can't say that I, was, that I was the director or the choreographer at that time. I was more like the one who watched and gave comment. How do you think you'd feel if you saw that piece today? Is it something that stayed in, in your work? It sounds well, you know, there, there's um, nothing left or very few images left from um, this, this performance. And in my mind, it was something extraordinary. But I'm sure that if I would see it, I would be very, very disappointed. <laughs> so it's good that there are no images of it. Uh -huh. But you, you didn't really know or you hadn't yet been exposed to what was possible in the body how movement could come out of a body movement that performance type movement so was the work quite pedestrian or did it did it can you remember that it actually had some technique if you will i don't mean that in a strict classical sense but well it was it was um, absolutely inspired in what we could do at that time we we wanted to to make uh, to do something on stage but we felt like incapable to talk um, properly so theater was not an option. And then we were not dancers either. So dance, at least in the classical sense of the word, was also not an option. But it was in that time that, that um, and I, this I can't recall, somebody showed us uh, video material of uh, the performances of uh, Pina Bausch. And that was really something that triggered us because all of a sudden we, we understood that it was possible to be inspired on the personality of, of people you worked with and that you could use your own body and your own history as, um, as a theme or as inspiration to make performances with. I think um, that I, I moved in a, in, a, in a quite strange particular way because I didn't have a background as a dancer. I followed a few courses, but not enough to, to be a dancer. But uh, I like to move and because of my length and my awkward sizes <laughs> of arms and legs and very the way tall I'm moving. man with long limbs for those <laughs> of you listening <laughs> i must have moved in a in a in a way that was unusual because it's true that in the performance we could see at that time uh like those from bejar men and women were were like um the soup the Campbell soups of of uh, of the soup soups, uh, yeah. you know the, these 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 uh, cans uh, painted by uh, Andy Warhol. You know they look alike yes, very, much. very much, and you had the impression that they were they had no libido and that there, there was no history behind these these um, these bodies. At least it was not used, and um, in that way I can imagine that the way I and a friend of mine and my sister who was in the performance moved was quite particular. It was very much inspired on what we could do. And um, 
and beyond that, you know, in terms like wh- wh- how not only using the daily, the, 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 the normal movements, but how would you move as a dancer if you were a dancer? But um, I think it's more, it's more spectacular and beautiful in my mind than, than it was in reality. So you started to do these performances for friends and people, and you were still teaching at the time, I, I think, yeah? Like you w- w- working, the, as the a, um, working as a, a psychopedagogue, right. which was not really teaching. Right. And, and at what point did you, did you feel, okay, I'm going to turn this corner now, this is where I'm going, I'm going to leave, leave this work um, that I'm doing with children and put myself more fully into um, making theatre, making dance theatre? Well, when I um, I was working in the cerebral, uh, cerebral palsy center, I was doing a job that I thought, okay, I can do this for five years, and then I have to decide either to because it was very very basic work. It was you know the the basic daily work with the children, and not the the real work as a psychologist, um, as a psychologue. And um, so I said, okay, I do this for five years. If I don't like it, I stop earlier. If I do like it, I will stop anyway after five years. And that's what happened. After five years, I stopped because then I wanted to go for a job as a uh, psychopedagogue. And um, uh, it was also the moment, uh, apparently, where I could choose whether I wanted to continue with theater or not. And if I did want to do it, then I had to get, give up this ambition to become a, uh, a good orthopedagogue. And I think the choice was, at that time, very impulsive, not knowing where it would lead me to. At least I wasn't, I was sure that, that um, even though I, I was uh, very passionate about it, I was sure I would never become um, a famous <laughs> choreographer. I mean, it was not in my mind and it was not even my ambition. Um, it was just something that felt right at that time because the people I was working with were as passionate about it as me. So it was an intuitive uh, choice. And then I think the idea of eventually going back to to the field of uh, psychology was always postponed. And at a certain point, I think there was no way back. back. (laughs) (laughs) Yet it's been obviously an influence in in at least some of the work that you've that you've made that experience that that reference point um, yeah yeah yeah. those children even i think that that i I even lived with a very strong guilt feeling for a long time when i was doing uh when, when i was 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 a professional theater maker because for me the real job was to be an orthopedagogue and that was something that i believed was a mission for me it was something that i had to accomplish in my life and theater was just a hobby and it was impossible mm-hmm. to gain money with that for me you mm-hmm. know as some sort of a, an ethic thought and uh, maybe th- this influenced me in making work that always had this um, or showed a certain kind of social engagement just to compensate <laughs> <laughs> on these guilt feelings and uh, after a while it f- it just felt like a necessity to um, to not show 
performances that just would be entertaining, but that there there would also be like um, a reference to what um, was happening in in the world. Um, and the the specific um, world of let's say handicapped people in which I worked uh, was always there, and um, I was absolutely intrigued by this world and wanted to use it in the performances I made, but never dared at that time. It's only so many years later, and I'm talking about the first performance I really did was uh, Alamal Indian, where one of the characters uh, was a, a young, a young uh, actor performing um, a mentally handicapped uh, boy. That I that I I dare to use this material and to show it, and um, later on to use it even in in the dance vocabulary that we were developing. Mm -hmm. And you, you went on to work with this with this boy in other productions as well. No, it, it, uh, at that time he he was um, he was he, I call him an actor, but he was just a, a, a young teenager. And then after this performance, he started to study uh, acting and and, um, and dancing. And um, our path never crossed. Okay. But at the moment, uh, he's making his own work and. He's uh, he's doing really great. That's amazing. He's fantastic. I mean, you, you opened up quite a door for him. It sounds like. Well, there there are um, many times this happened, and it's it's not something that I I believe it's um, it's um, something that I feel responsible for. But I, it, it's just uh, the um, I can imagine that the kind of work we are doing in the environment in which we work and the way we we. Uh, we, we make things inspires people to make their own work afterwards because they're very much encouraged to um, m make things um, to to um, deliver the material with which I continue to work with. This brings me back to sort of the origins of what we now know is Les Balaisés de l'Abbé and this this uh, structure that uh, you know that you that you've uh, flourished within this collective, a strange name for a collective, a kind of funny name. Tell me a bit about that, and tell me a bit about working in a collective. I mean, it's a very, as I said earlier to you privately, a very courageous decision, particularly that it's existed twenty, still exists twenty five years later. Well, I think um, the kind of a group of people I was living in. Uh, in the eighties, were people who were um, very much engaged and um, debating a lot about how to live together and how to organize work, and so it was impossible in this first period to work with a leader. Um, so, because there was not nobody of us who had the the capacities or the the, uh, the papers mm -hmm. <laughs> to be the leader of the band. Uh, everybody was equal in that sense. So um, we tried to make performances on this uh, democratic basis where everything was discussed and of course some people were more inspired than others and, and, and you know, there, there was a, a, a quite natural way of um, working together. Um, and this we wanted to continue uh, on a broader sense, so that uh, when we started to to form a company, that there was that the company would not be formed around one person, but that 
everybody had the possibility to make work if he or she wanted it. I discovered for a while that I was the one who always took the initiative to make something and the only way to provoke the others to think about it was to to get out of the the company and I mean not literally I was still involved but but to work with other people outside of the company for me to be inspired and for them to uh, for the others to make a choice whether they wanted to continue this company without me or not um, so in that way the collective grew and uh, was formed because then other people had to take initiatives and there people like Kuno Huisden of Hans van den Broek, Christine de Smet and later on others uh, became creators in the company. Um, the name Les Ballets Contemporains de la Belgique was um, a name we chose even before we uh, became like a professional company because in the early days when we started to tour um, theaters, I mean, the tours it was like four or five places in Belgium. That was it. <laughs> hey, four or five <laughs> places in Canada is a good tour today. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, but um, uh, these these places wanted a name to present to the sure. audience, and we didn't have one. And so we we wanted to choose something extraordinary in terms like uh, of of uh, something that would sound extremely pretentious and big, <laughs> completely in contrast with what we were representing because we were a very small group and we were making very fragile work. But to call it Les Ballets Contemporains de la Belgique was so funny, we thought. <laughs> were you sitting <laughs> in a bar or like, you know, drinking some beers and sort of... Oh, this I can't remember. This. I can't remember. Because, of course, uh, what was Béjar called? Uh, Ballet, Ballet de 20e siècle. Yes, That's also yes, a, big, yes. uh, yeah. a big lofty name. Yeah. So... I always wondered if it was some kind of nod to Béjar. Uh, yeah, yeah, it must yeah, have been. Yeah. It must have been, and and a link to Les Bar Ballets Russes and oui, you know exactly. the big the big companies. Yeah. Um, we 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 didn't have anything to do with Les Ball with ballet, and we didn't have anything uh, to do with uh, uh, anything. But but it, it it was also for a Flemish company as we were uh, quite provocative at that time to use a, a French name. Um, we wanted to do that because in, in these days, and I'm talking about uh, the second half of the 80s, there was a lot of fuss about um, about um, the difficulties and the tensions between the, um, the French-speaking and the Flemish-speaking part of uh, Belgium, at least on, on a political level. Um, and because it was only on the political level, it really annoyed us a lot. And uh, we wanted to make a statement, you know, in that sense that we wanted to have a Flemish company to have as some sort of a provocation, a French name. And when we started to ask for subventions, it, it, um, it caught us in a lot of trouble because, you know, when we had to ask it to the Flemish uh, uh, Ministry of Culture of and they didn't understand. They were saying, if you want money with this name, then you have to go to the French-speaking <laughs> government. Wow. So it took us a while and also the extreme right parties that started to grow in that time were very much opposed to this choice and they made it very clear. Uh, this is this often. is around the same time as Wim van de Kebis was starting to be on the scene, is that correct? And, and Anna Teresa de Kersmacher. So it was a bit later because the, the Anna Teresa... You were a bit later or they were a bit later? We were. You we were, were, okay. 
Um, there is an, an, um, an Jan Fabre and Jan Lauwers, they started in the early 80s. The early and um, we were there at the second part of the, okay. the second half yeah. of the 80s. So, yeah, I think more or less at the same moment as uh, Wim van der Kerbis. It's quite incredible, yeah. though, you know, when you think, you know, here we are several decades later and work coming out of choreographic work coming out of Flanders has had a huge influence. I mean, really, next to Pina Bausch, I think the biggest influence on contemporary dance ever. I think it's it's really weird. Uh, there is no explanation for that, except for describing the situation at that time. I think there was, a, for some reason, there was a, a good humus, you mm -hmm. know, like a, um, the fact that we didn't have to kill a father uh, an artistic father, um, which I think in other countries was much more difficult. Uh, you know, you have these strong houses of 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 reputation and of tradition in terms of, especially classical dance, against which I think it was very difficult for young people to fight. You know, to mm. but but uh, at that time in Belgium there was nothing. Uh, Bijard just left, and there was nothing except for the. Ballet of Flanders, which at that time was a very old-fashioned um, ballet company. So I think um, very also the fact that, that that some of the creators at that time, like Aunt Teresa and Jan Fabre, were extremely young and making this uh, extraordinary work. You know, Rosas uh, danced Rosas. I remember seeing it. I couldn't believe that this was made by somebody who is only 23 years yeah, old. Yeah, it's incredible. Uh, and it still, is, still has the power today. I yes. saw the piece again yeah. recently. And Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it's an evergreen, for sure. Yeah. Um, the fact that there, are so, that there were so many young people who all of a sudden made strong work, this, I think, is... This you can't explain, that's for sure. But what happened afterwards, I kind of can understand, because there was... I think there was a, a very, um, at least as I feel it, I was very much inspired by these artists, by these young artists. I went to see all their performances. Um, I loved their work, and I still do until today. I, I, I also follow it until today. And uh, I see that uh, little by little, uh, um, a, a greater group of young artists got inspired by this work and made his or her, or, or, or her own work, and this curiosity for each other uh, stayed. There was, I think, in Belgium, I can't really call um, a negative form of concurrence between the companies. There was much more encouragement, and maybe this is something that helped develop these, this strong work much more than if there was a unhealthy concurrence between the different mm -hmm. uh, artists. So you're you're coming in with this signature of your own and the collective around you and the early 90s happens and you make this piece which people refer to as a breakthrough piece um, lovingly called Bonjour Madame. Yeah. Much longer title, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, shortened to, as I say, yeah, lovingly Bonjour called Madame. Bonjour Madame. It was a, um, a citation um, of um, an interview I heard with um, Marguerite Durat which uh, until today still uh, um, is one of my favorites. Um, and in this statement she was saying, 
um, you know, in any kind of sentence, a banal sentence, you can find um, the essence of life if you want. Like, for example, if you would take uh, Bonjour, madame, comment allez-vous aujourd'hui, il fait beau, uh, il va sans doute pleuvoir, etc. In this sentence, you can find the whole essence of life. And um, this idea of finding the essence in banality was, I think, uh, something that absolutely inspired me. Um, in the work before I did, I made Bonjour, madame, but also uh, in Bonjour, madame. The only thing that changed radically with Bonjour, madame uh, in my parcours is the the way I worked with people. Because until then, I was always very well prepared uh, when we started to make a performance. I had a lot of ideas, I wrote them down, I had even parts of scenarios and concrete um, tasks I wanted to give to the to the dancers. And uh, with Bonjour Madame, I gathered uh, a very eclectic uh, group of uh, men, 10 men between the youngest was nine years old and the oldest was like the beginning of his 30s. Um, professionals and non-professionals, people who had a, a huge experience in dance, in classical ballet, as well as people who, who were just good dancers, good movers, children and adults, uh, and one woman who was in this performance. And when I started to work with them together, I saw there was this amazing exchange between all of them, because all of them were so eager to know the other by copying what he or she could do. And um, for the dancers, it was also so unusual to be confronted with very young kids and that these kids were there during the rehearsals and were asked to work together with them. That was so unusual for them. Mm -hmm. um, but they took it very seriously. And for example, if they started to make choreographers, chore choreographies or little dances, they always engaged the, the kids to be involved in it. And uh, so it was so exciting to watch all this that um, I decided to throw away all my my papers and <laughs> start to watch what, what was going on. And um, from there on, I started to de develop a way of working that I think until today I still um, continue to follow. So for people who haven't seen that piece, how would you describe it? I think all my pieces are, you can describe in, <laughs> in a certain way. It's about a group of people arriving in a certain kind of environment and they are there too long. And because of that, things are happening. <laughs> and um, these things are intriguing to watch. <laughs> and then at a certain point, it just stops and the light goes out. <laughs> um, but um, in th for each piece, there is uh, maybe... There are some themes that, that, that are there more obvious than in other pieces. And in Bonjour Madame, it was um, male behavior. And I think uh, the thing that they were um, intrigued the most by was not the, the, the evident um, male behavior, but much more the, the things they doubted about and uh, fragility and... Um, not knowing and uh, should we touch or not should we speak or not um, so this this um, this uh, very thin borderline between uh, being a man and being
That's all for this edition of NAC Dance Podcast. Join us next time for part two of the conversation with Alain Platel. Please send us your comments and questions. You can email us at nacpodcasts at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Don't forget you can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting nacpodcasts.ca. There you will find past episodes, subscription links, and instructions on how to subscribe. You can also find us as a free subscription in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Until next time, this is Alary Evans saying goodbye from NAC Dance. <laughs>